This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immune, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with fingers crossed everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guys lost everybody knows the fight was fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich that's how it goes everybody knows Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Hey, how was your Sunday? Before we get rolling with the program, I, uh, I have to share something with you. I had uh, just a wonderful day enjoying the, the world-famous uh, Santa Claus Parade here in uh, downtown Toronto. And we took our twin boys, Zachary and North, and I guess you call this an occupational hazard of being a, a parent. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering uh, tomorrow morning at work how many uh, parents of uh, small children, and let's be honest, particularly the dads, because this task usually falls upon them at the Santa Claus parade when you have, to, when you have the little guy or the little girl on your shoulders for the duration of about a two-hour parade. My, my shoulders just now started to seize up, and uh, North was up there for, uh, for the full time. He had a great time, and uh, I, he was carrying on. He had a hot chocolate. Now, how ridiculous is this? Talk about being inexperienced. Um, uh, I, uh, I had the little guy up on my shoulders. He had a hot chocolate, but he didn't spill a drop, thank God. <laughs> Can you imagine having hot chocolate raining down on you in the middle of the Santa Claus parade? But, wow, my shoulders are, uh, are tight. They should have shiatsu tables down there or something for the, uh, for the dads. Anyway, welcome aboard the, uh, the Conspiracy Show. We are, um, what is this, Dan, week 12, week 13 of the, uh, of the broadcast. 
And uh, a, little bit, uh, a little bit later in the program, actually not too far from now, we'll, uh, we'll check in with an internationally renowned clinician, researcher, and lecturer in the field of disassociation and trauma-related disorders. And you're saying, what does that have to do uh, with the type of program we do? Well, of course, we're all familiar with the, um, the horrible shooting rampage down at Fort Hood, Texas, and there has been a great deal of speculation in the conspiracy community, if I can use that term, that the shooter might have been or may be a Manchurian candidate, a programmed assassin. I know uh, that sounds ridiculous, maybe, uh, but wait till you have to, to hear or wait till you hear what Colin Ross has to say. Uh, he is um, the author of a number of books uh, in this field. One is uh, included, or one is called. Uh, Project Bluebird, which is uh, the featured book and DVD on my website at richardserrett.com. First off, however, coming up on the uh, the 22nd of this month, I am uh, honored and uh, privileged and very excited uh, to be uh, to moderate and uh, sort of co-present a film screening in conjunction with my good friends at ExoPolitics Canada. This is a documentary, the latest, from filmmaker James Fox. It's entitled, I Know What I Saw. And uh, this documentary, I think I can safely say, is guaranteed to um, change the way you see the universe. We're going to be joined on the line by the filmmaker, James Fox, in just a moment. Uh, But first... Uh, I welcome back into the studio the media director from Exopolitics Canada with more details on this documentary, uh, Victor Vigiani. Welcome once again, my friend. Glad to be here. Just great to be here, Richard. All right, let's let's uh, let's give the folks the details, which are also posted on the website, richardserrett.com. I Know What I Saw by filmmaker James Fox. November 22nd, give us uh, where and when and uh, the particulars. Yeah, November 22nd, uh, 1 o'clock at De La Salle Oakland's College Auditorium Theatre. That's uh, 131 Farnham Avenue, which is uh, about two streets uh, south of uh, St. Clair, west of Avenue Road, and right by the Summerhill uh, subway station if you want to use the, uh, the TTC by subway or the Avenue Road bus drops you right off in front of, uh, in front of De La Salle. The door is open at 12.30. Uh, uh, tickets, uh, $5, basically just a donation just to uh, help us out with uh, a few small items. Uh, we want people to see the film. We're, we're very um, engaged by what James has done and judging by, I've seen both now, his I Know What I Saw and the first effort that he had uh, um, out of the blue. And though both of those, uh, both of these films are absolutely uh, uh, stupendous in their approach and the way they look at uh, what James has put together and, and the demands he's making on the American government to come forward and tell everyone uh, what they know uh, about the uh, the UFO disclosure and the cover up. And, uh, and we're really, really excited. Uh, so once again, November twenty second, uh, doors open at twelve thirty. The film will start around one o'clock. You, you know, you'll you'll start the proceedings off. Uh, we're really pleased to have you as our host, and I'll probably say a few words along with Michael Bird, and then we'll launch right into the film. Now, uh, 
is this the first film that Exopolitics is actually uh, presented? Uh, no, no, actually, uh, this is the second. We did the Fast Walkers, uh, Robert Miles film, uh, two years ago at the same location. The Fast Walkers. Uh, actually, Paul Hellier was at was at, attended that one uh, and actually spoke at it too, along with uh, Stephen Bassett and uh, myself and Robert Miles. So uh, we've got a pretty good following, and people have been asking Michael Bird and I, when are you going to have your next uh, film screening? Who, who, who shows up to these screenings? Are these diehard ufologists, uh, dis- UFO disclosure advocates? Are they uh, the curious? Uh, who are they? Uh, both. Uh, we try to break new ground. Every time we uh, bring out one of these uh, events, we've done a couple of them, not just film screenings. We've done different types of events, press conferences and, and uh, just different kinds of meeting meetings. Uh, we try to um, approach and uh, attract both. Uh, people who are just curious about it, never heard anything about it before. That's, that's why we try to maintain a, a database of people who really want to find out about this, although they're not really that well informed about it. They're just very, very curious. So we try to cultivate people who, uh, who who want to know more and more about it, along with the uh, the database. Uh, within the database, we have people who are just diehard fans and just want to get right involved in it, want to know more, and are just very intensely interested and been that way for many, many years about the UFO disclosure and cover-up issue. So we have a pretty good balance, but we like to talk to the uninformed, as, as we put it. Well, the, the, the uninformed, as you say, let's say that uh, some of uh, those individuals that, uh, that are obviously familiar with the UFO phenomena, but not intimately, mm-hmm. uh, and are sort of on the fence, if they're sitting up front on Sunday, November 22nd, and watching James Fox's new film, I Know What I Saw... And uh, I, I mentioned uh, that uh, this is a film that um, people are saying is going to change the way you view the universe. Mm-hmm. What do you think, uh, how, how are these people, knowing the film that, as you do, how are these people going to react to what they see up there on the big screen? If it's totally new to them, they'll just, I guarantee they'll sit there and with the number of people that are uh, involved in it, uh, they'll just be shaking their heads and saying, this can't be, this cannot be. Uh, wh- why haven't I been told about this before? What's gone wrong with the system that I don't know about it? This cannot be. This cannot be. Well, uh, if that doesn't pique your interest, I don't know what will. We'll uh, pick it up on the other side. James Fox, filmmaker, his new controversial UFO documentary, I Know What I Saw. Stand by for more details. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. James Fox was born in England, raised in America by his father, Charles Fox, who wrote for newspapers, magazines like Rolling Stone, Playboy, Harper's, The Catholic Digest. When James was three... His father was struck with multiple sclerosis, and for many years, James assisted his father as he traveled to locations for news stories. They conducted interviews with people ranging from theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking for Esquire to race car driver Dan Gurney for Car and Driver. After completing two years of education in Paris at the Sorbonne, James moved to San Francisco. He attended San Francisco State University, where he finished his degree in French. He was very skeptical when a close friend first introduced him to the field of UFOs in 1993. However, 
When a reliable acquaintance corroborated the first story, James began to investigate, and in 1998, he completed his and sold his first major documentary, UFOs, 50 Years of Denial, to the Discovery Channel. It included such notables as Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell and Colonel Philip J. Corso, who was in charge of the foreign technology desk of the Pentagon during the Eisenhower administration. Uh, James Fox, welcome to The Conspiracy Show on AM740. Pleasure to be on. Wow, what a, um, a, an amazing background uh, uh, you have. And uh, it's, it's interesting the, the, the kinds of people uh, that end up sort of, uh, you know, discarding, not entirely discarding, but uh, I, I guess just becoming absorbed by the, uh, the UFO of phenomena and um, just incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm never, I never cease to be amazed by the, um, the erudition and uh, a sophistication of the people that end up in this, in this field. Um, as, what, what can you tell me a little bit uh, about your journey beginning in 1993, uh, this close friend that first introduced you to the field of UFOs? Uh, well, just, for, f- first of all, um, I ask all your listeners to uh, think hypothetically for a moment if, if, uh, if UFOs were indeed uh, real, um, how significant of a discovery uh, they would consider that. And um, I know I've had this discussion a number of uh, number of times with many different types of people, backgrounds, that sort of thing. And everyone pretty much standard response is, oh, it's a 10 out of 10. I mean, it would be one of the biggest discoveries of mankind. <laughs> and I say, well, I'm, I'm quite convinced that they are. <laughs> so it's very difficult, uh, you know, once you, um, you know, sift through a lot of the uh, Nonsense, and there's a lot of nonsense related to this topic. I'll be the first one to to, to admit that. But once you sift through and get to the core, uh, three to five percent uh, cases that truly remain uh, inexplicable or um, um, you know defy any sort of conventional explanation, uh, and and one has to sort of through the process of elimination. Uh, conclude that it, there does not appear to be a terrestrial explanation on, the, on some of these cases, then, uh, you know, it, it's hard, it's a difficult story to walk away from, you know what I mean? Yes, I, it I, changes I, everything. You're, you're, you're never the same person again. Right, and you think, wow, this is such a big story. I, I, you know, what is it going to take to get this information out to the general public? And, and I feel very strongly about that, that uh, we, ha- we all have a right to know about this stuff. And so... That's been sort of the driving force behind why I've, why I've been doing what I've been doing, because uh, I feel like it's a very significant uh, discovery, and it does not belong in the hands of a few. Tell, um, us, tell us a little bit more about uh, I Know What I Saw. What are people going to see on the big screen? Um, I Know What I Saw is a, uh, a collection of some of the best, most solid uh, UFO cases from around the world. Um, the... the uh, one of the first times where I've actually had a little bit of a, a budget, I had a little bit of a budget out of the blue, a very small budget with 50 years denial, where I, you know, I, um, you know, I could fly people in from all around the world. It, it revolves primarily around uh, an event we did at the National Press Club in 2007, November, where we flew in uh, 15 high-ranking military and government officials from seven countries, um, Iran and several countries in South America and France and England, um, to name a few, 
uh, generals and colonels and um, and uh, when they came to testify uh, at the National Press Club um, about very unambiguous UFO encounters. So just um, these are the cream of the crop, so to speak, <laughs> of cases. And uh, you know, we, we we built the film around it. You know, we traveled to different locations, get you know additional witnesses, and and um, it's very compelling. Whether you're into UFOs or not, uh, the response I've been getting, we've been getting with this film is that uh, it's, you you can you cannot deny uh, at least that UFOs are real. The only question remaining, from what I've been told, once they see this film, is who's piloting them. And, and, and what UFOs, do they want? Of, yeah, we don't know, you know, but uh, what what. How I def- define a UFO is after much investigation, uh, does it remain unidentified? And um, and these cases uh, clearly remain unidentified, and the, and the flight characteristics of these things are uh, so far beyond anything that we have now or have had, uh, you know, let's not even talk 60 years ago, but you're talking about objects. Some of them are reportedly over a mile across uh, that don't disturb the air, uh, have the ability to hover and accelerate from a standstill to out of sight in the blink of an eye without any sound, sonic boom, uh, visible means of propulsion, wings, tail, anything like that. Uh, and this is, you know, this is the case uh, all around the world. One of the things, James, that uh, I, I continue to be fascinated by is the segment uh, that you have with the sergeant uh, that was involved in the Bentwaters case. Um, his name escapes me at the, at the moment. Uh, Penniston. That's right, uh, Sergeant yep. Penniston. And That's one an of the amazing thi- case. It's incredible because when you were on um, on CNN on Larry King Live, he was he was an individual who was who was there with you, and yep, he I actually I picked him out. Yeah, he actually describes uh, him walking up to the UFO in the forest or just outside the forest in a, in a in a small glade or whatever it was, and actually placing his hand on an extraterrestrial vehicle or a vehicle that we don't know its origin um, and his his description of this was absolutely mind-blowing uh, run that one by us such an amazing case you know i spent that the in i know what i saw i took clips from uh, out of the blue as well but that's the compilation of 10 years of of, of research and um and documenting it took me basically what i'm trying to say is it took me 10 years to get all the witnesses from that night and i say all the witnesses that directly went out to investigate the they thought it was a they thought it was a crashed uh, aircraft of some mm-hmm. sort. Um, it's really funny actually. I talked to Penniston and John Burroughs and and Kabansag, and the initial report was, "Hey, go go investigate." They were given the orders to go investigate what appeared to be a crashed downed aircraft. And then as they approached this thing, uh, the guy from the tower said, "It didn't crash, sir." And he says, "Well, what do you mean it didn't crash?" He said, "It landed. <laughs> it was a controlled landing." <laughs> you know, so then. They're approaching this completely unknown, triangular-shaped object sitting on the forest floor um, that they had absolutely no uh, explanation for. And the fact that he walked up and touched it, and walked around it, photographed it, um, and then there were symbols on the craft, and he etched, he wrote the symbols into his logbook, which he still has to this day. And he took notes. Yeah, we had those symbols analyzed by uh, mathematicians. James, hold on. We'll uh, pick it up on the other side. James Fox, filmmaker, I Know What I Saw. Victor Vigiani, media director, Exopolitics Canada, presenting the screening of the aforementioned film. Sunday, November the 22nd, we'll give you some more details on the other side. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. James Fox helped organize today's UFO-related event in Washington. The official position for the Air Force is that they terminated Project Blue Book in 1969, and there have been no official investigations since then. Why do you think the Air Force doesn't want this out? I wish they would. Uh, if the Air Force is listening tonight, why don't you tell us the truth? I know what I saw, and I get very upset, and I was wondering why they won't find out what it was. I know what I saw. I know what I saw. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. James Fox is with us, filmmaker. The latest documentary is I Know What I Saw, Victor Vigiani in studio from Exopolitics Canada. And he and I will uh, be uh, co-presenting the, uh, the screening of this amazing film, November the 22nd, at the, uh, the uh, LaSalle... Uh, give me the, uh, the name of that. It's De, De La Salle. De La Salle. Thank you. De La Salle, Oakland's Auditorium in Toronto. And go to the website richardserrett.com for uh, details, but it uh, screens at 1 o'clock, doors open at 12.30. And we heard on that, uh, that clip coming back from the, uh, the break, Fife Symington, governor, a former governor of Arizona, who uh, witnessed what thousands of people did in 1997 uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. It's become known as the Phoenix Lights phenomena, and probably next to Roswell, uh, has done more to capture the uh, the attention uh, of the uh, of the world in terms of this uh, this phenomena, and you heard him essentially uh, confessing that he saw what a lot of people saw. And keep in mind, uh, Fife Symington initially uh, tried to uh, to cover up not only what he saw but to, to ridicule other eyewitnesses who came forward back in 1997. He held a press conference and uh, announced that they had uh, caught the person responsible for the uh, the Phoenix Lights and uh, proceeded to uh, laugh as a, um, a man dressed in, an, in a, uh, an alien outfit that came and... Uh, that was his chief of staff. It was his chief of staff? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Who apparently very reluctantly agreed to do it. Ah, but now, of course... <laughs> Five Simon to... had to give him an order. So <laughs> that quite remarkable uh, that um, that uh, Five Symington would then come back and uh, essentially apologize for what he did and then make that announcement. Uh, how important was that uh, Five Symington statement that he basically admitted well, he saw the, what he saw? That was monumental, you know. I mean, I, I don't know if you know the story, but I, I, uh, I thought I had a snowball's chance in hell to get an interview with him 10 years after the fact, uh, almost 10 years after the fact. 2006 is when I approached him, and he agreed to an interview. 
And I'll never tell my co-producers about it. They said, well, what's he going to say? I said, who cares? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And yes. all the way down to Santa Barbara from San Francisco, I decided to uh, contact one of his former constituents and, and, and also a witness to the event, Stacy Rhodes. And I said, Stacy, you're not going to believe what I have a meeting with right now on the camera interview with the former Governor Pipe Symington. Is there anything you'd like to say to him? She said, boy, you're damn right I would. So I said, well, let me record a statement from you. And I pulled over to the side of the road, I took out my pocket tape recorder, and I recorded a statement from Stacy, basically laying into him. Why the heck did you ridicule us? We put you into office, and you know we all saw this thing. Our stories have been consistent. It was witnessed by thousands of others. And he broke down on camera, and he said, you know what? I saw that thing, too. I, I couldn't believe it. I was pinching myself. Did he go into the interview looking like he might do that? or no. was he? No. Eh? Okay. Nope. Wow. He told me later that he went into the interview with the intention of stating that he only wanted to curb the uh, growing hysteria uh, that was happening. World, I mean, it was, he said it was just out of control. He had to do something. So that was his intent. Uh, and then he, and he said he knew, his, <laughs> he said, I knew my life would never be the same once I admitted having seen it myself. And, of course, he, admit, he went on to say he investigated it. He talked to people at Luke Air Force Base, the Pentagon, and they all shrugged their shoulders and said, we don't know what that was. Can, can you give us an idea, uh, Jane, to be on the, the, the Larry King Live show uh, with, with him and then also Angela Joyner. Uh, I was speaking with Angela, and off kind of uh, off stage, where people that are watching uh, the production go on, Angela was saying that uh, these people are shaking their heads in absolute disbelief that this kind of stuff is going on. Not not to ridicule it, but they just you know like what's going on? What is this all about? Can you give us a sense of what the Larry King Live Show was like when when you were there, and and, and the kinds of people that you met, and what they were saying about what you were talking about? Yeah, do you mean the, the, the debunkers, or do you mean the people behind the scenes? Behind uh, the scenes. Angela was saying there were people sort of behind the camera, and they were just uh, listening intently to you and saying, how long has this been going on, and why don't we know about it? People, well, I've been on a number of times, and but one time in particular, when we had the governor and I had Penniston, it's right before we did the National Press Club mm -hmm. um, event in 2007, and there were, uh, it was the former governor, we had a colonel, we had an airman, um, we had the guy from the FAA, John Callahan. We had a satellite feed-in from Denmark with a uh, uh, former investigator for the British government, MOD, Nick Pope. We went to a commercial break after the first segment, and Larry uh, kind of turns to the governor, myself, and the colonel sitting there with him, and he said, wow, he said, this, this stuff is real. This is real, isn't it? They all kind of shook their head and say, yeah, this is, this is the reality. This, is, this stuff's real. And he just had this look on his face like he'd been duped. Like kind of this thing. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was this revelation that this light bulb was going on. And all the cameramen and all the crew and everyone, they were riveted. They were riveted. And, and the ratings apparently are just through the roof every time we do a show on Larry King. It's, you know, it's, they're, they're really strong. So there's the interest out there, and I think people are starting to wake up to it. Well, Victor and I were talking off-air about uh, how people are going to react when they see the film I Know What I Saw, which we'll be uh, co-presenting on November the 22nd at the De La Salle uh, Oakland's Auditorium here in Toronto. Thank uh, you and, both, by the way, for putting this on. I really appreciate that, Victor. And oh, it's great. Too. It's a pleasure to do it, James. But uh, I, was, I was asking, Victor, how do you think people are going to respond if they're not uh, you know, intimately 
aware of the phenomena, as you and, and Victor uh, are, and, and he says, I suspect some people are going to be very angry. Uh, is that the kind of reaction you're anticipating as well, that, that, that for the, for the um, I, not the neophyte, but for those who are relatively new to this field of, of UFOs, they're going to leave there very angry, saying, why haven't we been told about this? Are you asking me? Yes. Well, the response I've been getting, because it's been aired a few times on History Channel already, um, is uh, it's been very positive. Uh, people, um, some of the people that already are, uh, know about it are very excited to use it as a tool to, to share with their skeptical friends. Uh, some people that were sitting on the fence that have contacted me and said, my God, this is the film I've been waiting for. This is the evidence I've been, I've been needing. Uh, I, there's no question in my mind anymore. And then the, uh, the extreme skeptics it, it, admit that there, ha- there, there has to be something going there, there has to be something going on. I think the only thing remaining uh, from what I've seen is who's piloting them. You know? And of course, that's just, that would have to be complete speculation on my part. I couldn't, I couldn't say. But the, so far, the response has been um, very positive. Um, very encouraging. It's just a matter of getting this thing out there. Do you know what I mean? Can you give us yeah. another uh, example of uh, one of the, um, as you as you put it, uh, unambiguous uh, sightings uh, I witnessed by um, somebody that's 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 featured in I Know What I Saw? Um, well, we had a, a number of pilots where they actually pursued these things, um, tried to fire at them, um, had their control panels locked up, thought they were going to have a uh, uh, mid-air collision. Um, you know, um, a guy, uh, amazing, it's a cat, uh, what do you call it, a cat and mouse chase, I think it was, it went on for like 15 minutes, and I, I'm trying to remember what kind of plane he was in, but it was a jet, a fighter jet, it was an F-4 fighter jet, and he, uh, he, he chased this thing all the way up to as high as his plane would fly, and then he started to near having a flame out, uh, and he got within... Uh, 30 feet in broad daylight of this thing, and he said, to my amazement, there was this disc. It was a perfect disc. It had no windows, no, no visible means of propulsion, no wings, no, um, no exhaust ports, um, and it, it was right there, looking right out of his window, and he's describing this thing. You know, he's, here he is, he's, this, this pilot, uh, and he said, I've never seen anything like it. There was no explanation for it, you know. How could it outperform? And it was completely outperforming him. I mean, it was making a mockery of his jet plane. No, I think one of the, with him. Yeah, the, the thing that really amazes me about that kind of evidentiary material, James, is that a lot of people will say, well, that's just, uh, you know, they're experimental aircraft. The United States has uh, some black budget operations that are putting out some pretty astounding craft. Well, that may be the case at this point. Uh, they, they do have some pretty incredible craft out there, but that argument does not hold water for all of the experimental things that uh, may have not been in existence back in the late 40s and 50s when exactly well, the same things were going on. That would mean, that would mean, if, it, if they're all explainable, in terrestrial means, that would mean that someone has been in possession of this revolutionary technology for over 60 years. And if that's the case, first of all, I find it impossible to believe that we could hide that kind of technology. No wings, no tail, no visible means of propulsion, no sound that can hover and accelerate out of sight in the blink of an eye without making a sonic boom, do 90-degree angle right turns at high speed. 
Show me that technology. Even Don't even if it, it even if that is the answer that these even uh, if it's that's still it's spectacular. Still, right? It is it, because it means that some uh, sector of the uh, the population, some elite group, has at their disposal the means to travel to the stars. Perhaps yep. we already have colonies on Mars. Never mind returning to the moon. And all this being uh, kept from us when we are in dire need of uh, energy for our vehicles and our homes and clean energy, etc. Yeah. I'm not excluding that as a possibility. I'm really not. I highly doubt it. Uh, who's to say what they have now? But uh, 60 years ago? Uh, how many other Roswells are, are out there, do you think, that we haven't heard about, given the fact that, the, that uh, uh, military people have seen these things land? Uh, and, of course, uh, I think the military is probably, we would all agree, a little more sophisticated in, in, in cleaning up uh, after a, a UFO crash than they were back uh, in 1947. It's probably impossible to answer, but based on your experience in talking to military people, how many other Roswells uh, undiscovered are, are out there? Victor, do you want to... Uh, is this directed at me? Uh, either of you. You take Victor, a shot at it. Well, I, I know of one in South Africa. Uh, there's documents that existed, I, I believe it was 76, I believe, um, that and also the Turan incident that I think you referred to earlier, it wasn't an actual crash, but I know of one in South Africa where a helicopter did crash uh, because of the instrumentation did get all messed up because of the electromagnetic effects of the crashed vehicle, and there were bodies uh, found. Uh, there was a crashed vehicle found and recovered, and uh, in addition to that, I believe if my numbers are correct, four um, uh, four military people from the South um, African uh, um, uh, military were actually killed in, in, the, in the helicopter crash. So these things are, uh, I'm not going to say there's dozens out there, I don't know exactly the exact number, Richard, but my sense is this has happened before, and there's several witnesses who've actually attested to the fact that they were part of the cleanup committee, so to speak, at some of these events that, that, that have happened. And that's not even including some of the controlled landings that may have taken place also. I've met a couple of uh, military witnesses that I've talked to uh, about that very thing, and, and I I have chosen um, not to include uh, any retrieval uh, information in, in my film, only because I feel that uh, it's very important for us just to establish the, that the phenomenon is actually taking place, mm -hmm. uh, first and foremost. But I've heard some very compelling stories, no, no question about it. James, uh, thank you for this. Thank you for I Know What I Saw. I look forward uh, to, uh, to being there on the 22nd. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to, to this film and, and your next. Thank you so much. I really appreciate what both of you are doing, and, and I appreciate you having me on. All right, uh, James Fox. Uh, Victor, again, uh, the details uh, for people who want to go see I Know What I Saw. And if, if you're a UFO uh, enthusiast, if I can use that term, um, get a skeptic and drag him along, and uh, they won't be disappointed. Uh, but, uh, Victor, how, how, why, where, and... Uh, Give us First the of all, the, the, just the basic information, November, Sunday, November the 22nd, at 1 o'clock at Dulles L. Oakland's uh, Theater Auditorium. That's 131 Farnham Avenue. The doors open at 1230. The film will begin at 1 o'clock. We're just after, after 1, after we sort of welcome people. And uh, the why of the film, basically, Richard, we want to get this information out to as broad a base of, of people as we possibly can. We've invited the mayor of Toronto. We've invited the mayor of Mississauga. I've sent invitations to 
all of the councillors in Toronto. Uh, all of the media know about this. So we're quite enthusiastic now. What kind of response we're going to get is another question altogether because it's something that uh, people just may want to stay away from because if they do show up, the credibility just might get uh, a bit of dent in it. Uh, so, But we have to make it, them aware of the fact that this is going on and we feel that it's our responsibility, it's our civic duty to make our uh, politicians aware of the fact that this kind of stuff is going on. There are answers out there that we need to uh, need to obtain with the questions that we have to ask in order to bring this thing full circle to make them realize that not only is this a phenomenon that is that is real, but it represents a technology that the planet needs. It badly needs it. And so with all of that, uh, we're inviting the broadest base of, of people out there. Like you say, come along, drag along a friend, and uh, you will be absolutely uh, blown away by this information. Uh, and, and let me uh, add to that. Let me uh, uh, throw down the gauntlet or issue a challenge to a, um, a journalist, uh, either a broadcast uh, or a print journalist, to attend this for five bucks, you can write it off and write a serious piece, whether you believe in it or not after watching I Know What I Saw. Dedicate some, some column space or uh, uh, speak to your assignment editor and uh, write a serious piece on what you see on uh, November the 22nd. And... Uh, I challenge somebody to go and see this film and walk away and then still write a uh, the typical sort of tongue-in-cheek, little green men, uh, ha-ha-ha type of uh, aren't these people funny and aren't the people that believe in UFOs odd little uh, little people. I challenge a mainstream a media, media uh, a person to go and, and cover this. All right, Victor, I look forward to uh, seeing you on the 22nd and... Uh, Thanks for dropping by. You're most welcome. It's going to be a great day. All right. And again, go to the website, richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T, Richard, S-Y-R-E-T-T.com, and uh, click on the uh, the uh, the story, Exopolitics Canada Presents a Film Screening, Sunday, November 22nd, 2009. All the details are there. When we come back, Colin Ross will be here to talk about the CIA and mind control. Was the Fort Hood shooter a Manchurian candidate? Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Quick announcement uh, before we get into the uh, the next topic. I am going to be uh, offering a 39-week program or 39-week course on uh, writing, producing, and hosting talk radio and talk television. And there will be details posted at the website, uh, richardserrett.com, in the uh, next few days. But if you're, if you're fascinated by the, uh, this field, uh, talk radio, talk TV, I think you have something to offer, uh, or just want some, some of the inside information on, uh, maybe you're just a fan, uh, check out the website again, richardserrett.com. Over the next few days, there will be details there posted. Uh, about this 39-hour program or 39-hour course I will be offering. And uh, you can send me an email, and I'll give you some more details. Uh, so, so watch out for that. All right. People still scratching their heads over uh, this one. In fact, uh, of course, uh, now there are a group of Muslim leaders that are going to be gathering 
tomorrow morning in Southfield, Texas, and they're going to be calling for the maximum punishment against the Fort Hood, Texas shooter, saying his actions were not Islamic. And uh, the uh, the Muslim, uh, the head of the uh, Michigan branch of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, saying if he's not deemed to be mentally ill, he should receive the maximum penalty. A member of the Council of Islamic Organizations of Michigan, a group of Muslim leaders or imams in Metro Detroit, is also to criticize the statement given last week by a Muslim cleric from uh, Yemen who once preached in American mosques, has praised the actions of Major Nadal Hassan, of course, the uh, Muslim-American of Palestinian descent, who allegedly shot dead 13 people last week at an army base in Fort Hood, Texas. A lot of people, though, speculating that this Fort Hood, Texas shooter, Nadal Hassan, this was entirely out of character. And perhaps he was under some sort of mind control. Perhaps he was a programmed assassin, a Manchurian candidate. We're going to delve into this further over the next hour or so with Colin Ross, who is an internationally renowned clinician, researcher, author, lecturer in the field of disassociation and trauma-related disorders. He's the founder and president of the Colin A. Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma. He obtained his MD from the University of Alberta in 1981 and completed his training in psychiatry at the University of Manitoba in 1985. He's been running a hospital-based trauma program in Dallas, Texas since 1991. His book, The Trauma Model, A Solution to the Problem of a Comorbidity in Psychiatry, was first published in 2000 with a second edition appealing in, appearing in 2007. Other recent books of his including is include Schizophrenia, Innovations in Diagnosis and Treatment, The CIA Doctors, Human Rights Violations by American Psychiatrists, and Moonshadow, Stories of Trauma and Recovery. And again, if you go to my website, uh, up at the top where I have my featured book and DVD, there is Bluebird, Deliberate Creation of Multiple Personality by Psychiatrists, again by Dr. Colin A. Ross. And uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier uh, his book, Military Mind Control. Colin Ross, welcome to The Conspiracy Show on AM740. Hi, always my pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us. Well, you're, um, you're down there in, uh, you're in Dallas, Texas, correct? Yes, I'm not that far away from Fort Hood. No. Uh, your immediate impressions upon uh, hearing the details of this shooting, did you um, an, an immediately suspect that... Uh, uh, that uh, this gentleman, uh, Nadal Hassan, might have been a programmed assassin? Uh, yeah, I immediately thought that's one of the options. And and what led you to that? Uh, simply the fact that it happened on a military base and it was a mass shooting, nothing more than that. The, the options are basically... Um, now, I'm talking the realistic options that could actually be true, but I don't know which one is in fact true. But in terms of options that could realistically be true, one is that uh, he simply acted on his own and he was uh, motivated not by anything political, it was just part of his post-traumatic stress, mental health problems. That's kind of option number one. Option number two would be he acted on his own, but it was really uh, political motivation, political slash religious ideological motivation. 
in which case a lot of people would define that as a terrorist act. Uh, next option is he acted on his own, but he was strongly influenced by somebody like the Amman over in Yemen, but not formally controlled by anybody. He wasn't part of a organized operation. And then the last option is uh, he was actually handled, run, controlled by somebody, and some sort of mind control techniques were used on him. So all those options, I think, are actually realistic, possible, could be true. Now, since the uh, the details uh, sort of have come out, uh, you know, reports that he grew increasingly religious, he had an acronym uh, for Soldier of Allah on his business card. He shouted, Alu Akbar, at the time of the shootings, etc. Uh, I mean, what, what sort of things do you look for uh, when you're trying to make a determination as to whether someone might have been uh, under some sort of a mind control? What, what, what are the clues? Well, um, to see that they were influenced by somebody, first of all, I want to find out, is there any connections to anybody who might have been influencing them? And that seems pretty clear. He had, there's these 10 to 20 emails that were intercepted between him and the Amman, who's now in Yemen. And that Amman was um, preaching at a mosque in Falls Church, Virginia, prior to that. And uh, Hassan's mother's funeral was held at that mosque, and two of the 9-11 pilots attended that mosque. And the email communication back and forth between the Amman and between Hassan was monitored by the U.S. Intelligence Committee and a joint terrorist task force reviewed it and concluded that it was just part of his research into um, the role of Islam and so on in the war and in the war on terror. So there's no doubt that he had this contact uh, and that it was extensive. And obviously the things he yelled at the time of the shooting make you think that he wasn't just purely mentally ill. He had a ideological, religious, political angle on this. So I'd look for those factors, which are present. Um, then I would look for uh, what you described, that it's, the behavior is very out of character for him, for the way that everybody who knows him describes him. It's unexpected. He doesn't have a prior history of any kind of violence or acting out. Now, those things can be, those are typical of serial killers, for instance. Serial killers are often described as the guy next door, the good neighbor, a regular quiet person. So that change in character doesn't prove or doesn't even strongly lean towards somebody who's uh, controlled, but it's consistent with it. And so then I look for, um, if it was just a random domestic violence and the target was nobody of any particular political significance, then I would tend to steer away from it, some sort of operation. But when it's on a military base and it's obviously tied up in world geopolitics, when the shooters are not random by race and religion, that is, when he's Arabic Muslim, that's somebody who would be a logical target for somebody to control and run against. In other words, the military, uh, the, the military or the CIA would deliberately pick a, a, a Muslim uh, in order to um, perpetrate this heinous crime, in order to stir up some sort of anti-Islamic a sentiment in the country, uh, which comes on the heels of uh, uh, the U.S. contemplating more boots on the ground in Afghanistan. So they want to uh, to, to galvanize public support for something like that. So right. they get 
uh, um, a Muslim to to um, undermine control to to, uh, to to provide the pretext. Right. So that wouldn't make sense. Whether that's actually what's going on, you know, I as a civilian just looking at the mainstream media reports can't tell one way or the other. But my point is that that's not just some you know absurd outer space theory. That's actually a realistic possibility. For those that will will. Uh Pick it up on the other side, uh, uh, Colin, but uh, when we come back, I, I, I'm sure there are many people listening who are hearing words like mind control and uh, Manchurian candidate and think, well, this is just way beyond the pale. I, I want you to give us a bit of a, a primer on uh, the CIA and their mind control uh, projects when we come back, MK Ultra, etc. Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, people listening then will have a, a sense or a context on... on, on uh, how this might, in fact, be possible. In the meantime, we'll also get your feedback at 416-360-416-360-0740, and toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-0740. sorry, 4740, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Colin Ross, my guest. And he's an internationally renowned clinician, researcher, author, lecturer in the field of disassociation and trauma-related disorders. What does that have to do with the, uh, the shooter at uh, Fort Hood? Well... There is a, a suggestion and some evidence that uh, he may have been, in fact, under some sort of mind control. And if you're sitting back listening to this program and saying, well, this is just ridiculous, there is no denying that uh, the CIA has been uh, working on for many, many years, probably since uh, the Second World War, and spending a great deal of money on... Uh, programs involved in behavioral modification. MKUltra was or is real. Uh, Colin, what, what is uh, or was the MKUltra uh, program all about? Well, it was one of a series of programs. The, the CIA was actually formed in 1947, and there was mind control work done in the Second World War, largely by people who ended up forming the CIA in 1947. Exfiltrated Nazis. Uh, yeah, they actually recruited a lot of Nazi scientists through paperclip, probably also some psychiatrists who were involved in the mind control programs. So um, the first CIA documented CIA mind control program was signed into existence by the director of the CIA in April 1950, which was three months before the Korean War started in June of 1950. So these programs were in operation before the Korean War started. The reason I mention that is one of the disinformation claims is that all of this was just in reaction to communist Chinese brainwashing downed U.S. pilots in the Second in the Korean War. Clearly not true because the programs were in existence and running before the Korean War started. And Bluebird and Artichoke were first two, and then they were rolled in, over into MK Ultra, which then was rolled over into MK Search, which ran until 1972. And there's a bunch of other programs. Cross-linked with 
All right. Uh, you mentioned uh, a, a Korea, and of course that is the setting um, for the uh, the book, and also well, the book uh, by Richard Condon, the Manchurian Candidate, which later became a um, a movie starring Frank Sinatra and Angela Lansbury, and Lawrence Harvey back in 1962, which many dismissed as uh, sort of a, a red scare movie, uh, where a former uh, Korean war POW, Lawrence Harvey's brainwashed by communists into becoming a political assassin. Right. Um, do you think that Richard Condon had uh, some some inside information? Uh, I mean, or do you think, is, is a Manchurian candidate essentially a documentary, I guess is what I'm saying, is what I'm getting at. Well, it's not literally a documentary no. in a sense, but it's, uh, it's a description of things that are very real and operational, yeah. All right, let's uh, grab a phone call here and uh, say hello to George in Mississauga. George, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Well, good evening, Richard. Hi there. Well, one thing I'd like to bring up, there's you know a lot of bizarre coincidences in this uh, homicide, and I look at these things as homicides where you look at all the victims and such, and one of the most important ones is uh, a doctor, L. Eugene Caverio, was uh, one of his victims, and he was Guantanamo psychiatrist. So I find that rather unusual. And another thing is uh, when Major Hassan was in Virginia, he stayed at Falls Church, Virginia, and one of the victims of the Beltway sniper, Linda Franklin, the FBI analyst who set up the InfraGuard program, was one of the victims. She was shot and killed in Falls Church, uh, Virginia, population 11,000. What are the odds that uh, you know two major uh, incidents involving mass murder and possible, well, there's no doubt about the Beltway snipers being Manchurian candidates. They were turned off on TV with the duck in a noose uh, line that they were in the same area at the same time. And uh, this Dr. Caraveo had an office in Woodbridge, Virginia as well, which isn't that far away from Falls Church. And Falls Church is very close to uh, Langley, Virginia. So, uh, you know, I'm concerned that maybe both these doctors may have been involved in controlling uh, these two Manchurians, and uh, you don't exactly have a good life expectancy when you work for the company at that level. George, great call as always. Colin, uh, your thoughts on, uh, on that? Uh, that's very interesting. That's the kind of information that when you're trying to piece this together, you really want to focus on. So from an investigational point of view, that's perfect information. A parallel to that would be... Uh, fairly famous serial killer in the U.S. Called, named the BTK killer. Yes. Which stood for bind, torture, kill. Out of Wichita, yes. Yeah, and he's in jail, life sentence, uh, many, many life sentences, and he's just supposed to be a regular domestic serial killer, and his targets were random and so on. But the first family that he attacked and killed, which was the mom, the dad, and two of the children, uh, Joseph Otero was the dad, and Joseph Otero worked on the same uh, Air Force base in San Antonio in the same time frame, in the same capacity as the BTK killer. Uh, and Joseph Otero flew, um, he was a pilot, and he flew into Latin America. He also spoke Spanish uh, for the CIA out of that Air Force base. And that's all you know, discussed in various background documents and books and so on. So... Again, look, what are the odds that uh, Dennis Rader moves to you know, a mid-America, kind of regular, normal city, and all of a sudden, uh, within about it was about three to four months of Joseph Otero moving there, 
he randomly chooses him as his first target as a serial killer. This is a little bit too much to really believe. Uh, George mentioned the uh, the Beltway sniper. Uh, John Allen Muhammad, of course, uh, was put to death on uh, on Tuesday at uh, Greensville Correctional Center by lethal injection. He had no final words. George also alluded to the the triggering mechanism. The uh, the sheriff at the time, of course, it appeared before the cameras almost on a daily basis while that was going on back in two thousand and two. Um, mentioning, and, and a lot of us sat back and watched those press conferences, and when he said, uttered the words, a duck in a noose, we thought, well, that's a very peculiar choice of words, a duck in a noose. Uh, yeah, that, uh, I was actually watching TV just by chance when that announcement was read, and I immediately thought, now wait a minute. So the, the scenario is we have just, supposed scenario, is we have just a regular everyday law enforcement guy, and we've got these snipers. We, they're not caught yet. We don't know who they are. And this guy just stands up on national television and reads this very strange statement. And that's just kind of business as usual, regular law enforcement activity. And he states, the, 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 um, his, name, his last name was actually Moose. I think it was Sergeant Moose. I forget his rank. Uh, he states that this was a message that the shooter wanted to be read to him. So supposedly the shooter had uh, communicated with the media and sent them this unusual message, asked the law enforcement people to read it, and the law enforcement people said, okay, sure, we'll do that. I mean, it's just an extremely odd story. And I immediately thought, now that sounds like programming code. Yes, it was uh, Police Chief Charles Moose uh, right. from Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, let's talk about how mind control works. And, and uh, your specialty is uh, dissoci- disassociation disorder and, and trauma. Right. How are those two used in, uh, in mind control? Well, dissociation I mean, is a group of disorders that are in the you know, official diagnostic manual. With the American Psychiatric Association, there's a large literature on them. And dissociation basically means disconnecting from yourself. So you split your thoughts from your feelings, your memories from your behavior, and so on. So it's disconnecting, dissociating internally. And the most complicated form of that is multiple personality disorder, where you have, quotes these different people inside who aren't literally, in fact, separate people. But there's memory barriers between them. They think that they're separate people, and they take turns being in control of your body. And this normally arises just in regular life as a way of coping with child abuse. So it's basically just too much, too overwhelming. And so you imagine that there's other people inside you who are coming out, taking control of the body and handling the abuse. And this is so subjectively real and so vivid to the person that it becomes psychologically real to them. And the Manchurian Candidate is basically an artificially created multiple personality. And the purpose of the Manchurian Candidate is there's a sort of side debate about is it possible to use hypnosis to make somebody do something that they ordinarily wouldn't do, and therefore is the Manchurian Candidate possible? To me, that's just a kind of diversion. Because if you want to get a regular citizen to go out and kill a whole bunch of people, all you do is them for basic training. So there's nothing that Manchurian candidates do 
that regular basic troops or special forces people can't do. So what's the purpose of it then? And to me, the only thing that makes sense is it's the amnesia. So you create this new identity, you insert some hypnotic uh, codes and commands and so on, the new identity comes out, does the mission, and if they're ever caught and interrogated, the out front person has no memory at all, and so is much more immune to interrogation. So to me, it's really about making the person more immune to interrogation. So it's not about getting them to do certain things. So the vast majority then of mind control subjects or victims, if you if you would, uh, they would be used in a military capacity or an intelligence capacity, perhaps as a courier to send information uh, to somebody if they're intercepted. Uh, the person who interrogates that uh, mind control subject would have no way of accessing that information uh, because it's de- buried deep within that individual's uh, subconscious, perhaps, or you know, part, un- unless they can bring out that that uh, a personality, uh, that um, other personality, they'll have no way of getting at that information. So mainly as couriers for information, uh, but in some cases as assassins. It can be any, any mission or operation or activity of any kind. And this is not just something some science fiction person made up. This is described over and over in great detail in the CIA documents and by a man named G.H. Esterbrooks, who was a contractor back in the Second World War and was building and running these Manchurian candidates for the War Department back then. So it's it's something that's described in great detail uh, and the descriptions include actual operations and a whole set of kind of practice, real-life simulation exercises. Colin Ross, my guest, is uh, the author of Bluebird, Deliberate Creation of Multiple uh, Personalities by Psychiatrists and also Military Mind Control, uh, among others. I believe uh, you've authored about 170 uh, uh, papers uh, and books. And um, Around there, yeah. Uh, again, for people who are not believing, if you go to the website richardserrett.com, uh, there is uh, up at the top my featured uh, secret document, Project MKUltra, the CIA's program in behavioral modification. And um, that is an actual uh, uh, congressional hearing. This document uh, is an actual congressional uh, hearing testimony in, uh, by Admiral Stansfield Turner, director of the CIA at the time. So they, ad- the CIA has, uh, has admitted that they were engaged in this sort of activity, but they said they sort of shut everything down back in the early 70s, did they not? Right, but to me that's just ridiculous and unbelievable. And in fact, I would say that, well, number one, that's impossible and ridiculous, and I don't believe it for a second. But if they did actually shut down all those programs back then, to me that would be irresponsible and they wouldn't be doing their job. Because uh, in this documents going back even into the 50s, it describes a lot of concern about foreign intelligence agencies running mind-controlled agents, double agents, moles, and so on against the United States. And procedures and investigations, discussions about how to detect these guys. Um, So... If you didn't look into this and you didn't stay up on this, you'd be completely exposing Western democracy to attacks by mind-controlled terrorists. 
Let's go to the. You would be failing in your duties as a CIA. It wouldn't make any sense at all to me. Let's go to the phones. And is it Simone in Illinois? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes, and welcome, uh, Simone. Okay. Well, I got have kind of a bombshell to drop, and I'm going to be very generalized and uh, try to do it in a soundbite manner. It's a, a long story, so I'm going to try and <laughs> get a reader digest version in. But um, 30 years ago, <laughs> I was in the military, and I... Uh, um, I got in trouble. I had a high clearance, and I got into a situation uh, that's very much like Gary McKinnon's situation. And um, after that, I started having trouble um, uh, as far as, um, well, let me put it this way. I started withdrawing and not doing my jobs very well. then uh, when I got back out and I came back home and to a civilian into the civilian world and back home to my family, um, I became so empathic that I couldn't hold on to a job or an apartment. <clears throat> uh, I did this for ten years, and then five years after that, I, you know, went into homelessness, and I was homeless for five years. And but I'm, I'm back with my family now, and I'm. The, the VA put me on disability, and um, I, my question is, <laughs> um, has the guest ever heard of the, has the guest ever heard of, uh, has the, guest ever heard of um, the military, and can the military induce uh, mental illness into someone in order to uh, do, like, do security control and damage control, uh, or have um, I reacted badly as a result of uh, trauma, and so that—that's my question. <laughs> Simone, first of all, let me uh, let me um, uh, thank you for calling. You're uh, very brave uh, to have done so. I can I can obviously tell in your in your voice that this is very difficult for you to talk about. So it was very courageous of you first to pick up the phone. And um, uh, let me just for you mentioned uh, Gary McKinnon, of course. Not for those not familiar, he's a um, a British. Uh, ostensibly a British uh, computer hacker uh, facing extradition to the U.S. on charges of perpetrating what uh, one U.S. US prosecutor described as the biggest military computer hack of all time. Um, so you were accused of doing something sort of similar? Is that is that I, correct? I was, I was in, yeah, I was, I was in similar trouble as in, in that um, the kind of work I was doing, I... Um, you had access to some pretty sensitive material. Well, I'll, I'll just say that I, I'll, I just want to say that I was in a situation similar to him, and that's because if I start going into more detail, it's understood a lot. But let me just ask you point blank: Do you suspect that you were or are under some sort of mind control? Well, I know I know there were some hospitalizations because um, I was I was in trouble as as bad as him as well, and. It, it was so. I was so scared that uh, I know that um, there were at least two hospitalizations because um, one, I made a kind of a half-hearted suicide attempt. It was a more of a cry for, you know, help. 
but um, there was a couple or three hospitalizations, and um, my memory of them to this day is real choppy. I mean, I only remember uh, bits and pieces. I don't remember my whole time during those hospitalizations. I just remember, like, one or two days, and I, I try to remember. And then uh, after, well, after all of that, it's like I said, it's a long story. But after all that, um, I started mm, not doing my job. Okay, Simone, let, can I ask you to hold on through the break here? Because I want you to, uh, to, uh, to talk to Colin Ross uh, directly and put those questions to him. Uh, I just wanted to clarify exactly what, um, what, what your position was and where you were sort of coming from. And if, you're, uh, if you can hang in there, when we come back, uh, Colin Ross will uh, will take those specific questions about whether or not your uh, whether or not a mental illness could be in fact induced by some sort of mind control uh, program. That's what we're talking about on the Conspiracy Show: mind control, Manchurian candidates, programmed assassins. Don't go away. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. In his book, The Perfect Assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, The CIA and Mind Control, uh, Jerry Leonard, who I've uh, talked to a, a couple of times, lays out a pretty convincing case, I think, and uh, has uncovered... Um, some uh, some interesting documents that that highly suggest that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was under CIA mind control. In fact, uh, back in the fifties, uh, these are uh, many of these are declassified documents. You can find them online. One in particular uh, paints a picture uh, back in the fifties. Keep in mind of uh, of uh, programming somebody to uh, to take out the president or a high highly uh, highly placed. Uh, publicly elected official. And uh, then when Harvey, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, uh, was sort of uh, uh, blamed for, uh, for the assassination of JFK, a lot of researchers in the field started to connect the dots and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what about that document we found back in the 50s that was basically painting this exact scenario? We're talking about uh, Manchurian candidates, programmed ass- assassins, and mind control. Colin Ross is uh, on the line, and uh, his, uh, he's an internationally renowned clinician, researcher, author, lecturer in uh, the field of disassociation and trauma-related disorders. And uh, Simone is uh, on the line from Illinois, 
who uh, suspects she may be under some sort of uh, mind control, not really sure. Uh, Simone, are you still there? Are you still with us? Yeah, I'm still here. Thanks for holding on. Your question uh, for Colin Ross again, please. Um, is, can, is, does he, has he heard of a military program to induce mental illness as, yeah, um, no. for purposes of uh, security control? Uh, absolutely. And it's not just that I've heard of it. It's described very clearly in many, many, many documents. And one of the forms of mental illness that's induced in these programs is multiple personality disorder, which is a psychiatric diagnosis, according to the American Psychiatric Association, and there's lots of papers and literature about it in mainstream psychiatry. The documents also describe uh, drug experiments, LSD, uh, sensory deprivation, sensory isolation, massive amounts of electric shock, uh, a whole variety of different techniques used experimentally and operationally to create amnesia, to create new identities, to erase memories, to... Uh, oh, oh, to erase memory, memory, too? Yeah. Yeah, to okay. Memories. All of this is described in great detail in the declassified documents. So it's not, there's no question, it's an absolute documented fact. <clears throat> CIA and the military have been creating uh, psychiatric symptoms and disorders <clears throat> on purpose. Well, I, I don't have multiple personalities, but um, I became, over time, um, intolerant of people and sensory um, stimuli. Um, and I, I don't like bright light. I don't like being out in the sun. I don't like people. And um, I wasn't like that when I went in the service because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to tolerate staying in the service. <laughs> and um, but I became like that, you know, very strongly when I left the service. Um, well, I, I guess I'll just hang up and listen to, you know, what you think about that, and I appreciate you having me on. Simone, thank you very much again for uh, for that call. Very courageous of you. Uh, so so I, I, obviously I can't reach any firm conclusion about her in particular, but all I can say is such concerns are not far-fetched. They're realistic, they're possible, they have happened. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the use of trauma in creating um, a, a mind control subject, uh, whether it's for the purposes of uh, couriering information or to, to produce a programmed assassin. Uh, what are we talking about in terms of trauma? Well, in the documents, the trauma part of the story is pretty well absent. But uh, in terms of undocumented accounts that I've heard from a whole variety of different people and from clinical work and the clinical literature, Basically, if you want somebody's mind to split into pieces so that you can control and manipulate the pieces one at a time, the best way to do that is a whole bunch of overwhelming trauma. And whether that's uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, sensory deprivation and isolation, mock executions, there's just no end to the possibilities of different techniques you can use. These are all described in various interrogation manuals, and they're used in kind of a hodgepodge amateur fashion by a lot of battering spouses, for instance. So the only difference between kind of a 
a high-end battering spouse who's a fairly clever and fairly organized, and a, an actual military program is just the degree of sophistication, the degree of organization. Well, uh, trauma, uh, physical, sexual abuse, then not surprisingly, a lot of this, uh, this was perfected by uh, the Nazis, and uh, not surprisingly then that the... Uh, the OSS at the time, later to become the CIA, would want to to recruit these individuals. Um, I'm guessing, though, that in the 60, almost 70 years since the Second World War, uh, that they have perfected this. I, I agree with you. I don't believe for a moment that the CIA abandoned MKUltra or their mind control programs in the early 70s. But one would have to think that in, in 70 years, they no longer would need uh, such a, a a, a crass and unsophisticated uh, mechanism to, 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 to create a, a mind control victim. What, what, what do you think they might be doing now? Well, all the documentation stops in 1972, except for some of the um, psychic spying programs. So uh, Louis Jolly and West, who was uh, MK Ultra contractor, cleared it top secret, uh, working on dissociation hypnosis and so on, he was uh, president of, I mean, uh, chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oklahoma, and is famous for killing a uh, elephant at Oklahoma City Zoo with a dose of LSD. He then moved to UCLA and was head of Department of Psychiatry at UCLA for quite a few years. And he was a contractor to the CIA, various branches of the military, and so on. So when uh, Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald, the local FBI and so on who are in charge of the case decided to get a psychiatrist to come in to interview Jack Ruby to see what was wrong with him. So what are the odds that just by chance the law enforcement people based in Dallas would select a top-secret cleared MK Ultra mind control contractor and have him come in, which is what happened. Louis Jolly West came in, examined Jack Ruby, and concluded that he shot Lee Harvey Oswald while having a seizure, which is just absolutely out of sight, preposterous. And then when uh, Timothy McVeigh was captured, the Oklahoma City bomber, he was taken to Tinker Air Force Base, and again, Louis Jolion West was brought in to interrogate him and assess him. So these things are all tied together in this infinitely complicated web. All right. When we come back, uh, Colin, I'll get your take on... Uh, in fact, I think the last time we spoke uh, on this matter uh, was back in uh, April of 2007 in the wake of the Virginia Polytechnic Institute uh, shooting rampage in Blacksburg, Virginia, in which, ca- in which case the uh, uh, perp was one Swing uh, Hui Cho, who killed 32 people, wounded many others. I'll get your take on uh, that shooter as well. Manchurian candidates and programmed assassins here on the Richard Se- or on uh, the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Major Nadal Malik Hassan, the alleged shooter in the uh, Fort Hood shooting rampage, which left uh, 13 dead and uh, many wounded. Interesting connection uh, with him and the uh, the shooter in the Virginia Tech 
shooting back in 2007, the Chinese student uh, named Sung Hui Cho, who killed 32, uh, because Hassan uh, graduated um, his, his, part of his psychiatric training. He was, it was paid for uh, by the U.S. military at Virginia Tech. And he graduated from that school's Center for Applied Behavior Systems with a degree in biochemistry. And um, I have um, read and been told that that school is most likely one of the U.S. Department of Defense's top PSYOP training centers. And again, this is where uh, another um, shooting took place back in 2007. All right. Um, Let me ask you then, Colin Ross, about the 2007 shooting at Virginia Tech. Sung Hui Cho. Uh, does he have all the, uh, the, um, the, the, the markings of a, uh, a Manchurian candidate? Well, there's actually more reason to suspect him, just from what's in the public domain, than there is the Fort Hood shooter. Uh, suspect him of being mind-controlled, or, or at least having a dissociative disorder minimum. And that's, there's several reasons for that. In, um, in his coursework, he wrote several plays that I have copies of that I got off the Internet, which are describing uh, victims of childhood sexual abuse who are extremely angry and who are plotting to get revenge on adults and to uh, commit some sort of large-scale violence to sort of avenge the abused children of the world. So these are clearly themes that were on his mind. Um, He was described by all kinds of people who had contact with him on campus as being almost entirely silent all the time, never speaking to anybody. Um, And he actually had one psychiatric admission, so we know he had psychiatric problems. But one of his roommates who was being interviewed on television within a day or two after the shooting described an incident where uh, this guy was talking to him on the phone and was not uh, very far away, like a few rooms away or something. And he was talking rather strangely, so the student who was telling the story went and talked to him immediately, like within half a minute, and said, why were you talking strangely and saying these things on the phone? And he completely denied that the conversation had ever taken place. So he appeared to have amnesia, uh, which obviously makes you think that he has some sort of dissociative disorder, which makes you wonder, is he under anybody's control? In other words, that phone call may have been his controller on the other end, giving him the triggering word or words? Uh, No, this was just a chat between his roommate and him. Ah, I see, okay. Yes, but the point being that he had amnesia for a conversation that had just taken place a few minutes before. Um, And then uh, he was a very uh, shut down, disturbed, a social kind of person who barely said a word to his roommates in months and months and months and months. And then on his tape uh, that he sent to NBC, I think it was, he's quite talkative, quite extroverted. So that makes you wonder whether there was a switch of character there. And then uh, he uh, just, I can't remember now, I haven't read these materials for a while, but he had uh, a name on his uh, arm what that was it was kind of a odd name and uh, there was some kind of hint that that was a, another identity that carried out the shooting 
the um, Virginia Tech is located uh, in, in Blacksburg, Virginia. Right. And there is some suggestion that there is a deep underground research laboratory uh, under Butt Mountain in Blacksburg. Right. Yeah, I've, I've read about that on the Internet, and I'm aware of all that. Uh, do you think there's any credence to this? What would this research laboratory be a, a, about mind control? Who knows? Yeah, but there's lots of reasons to think that Virginia Tech and the immediate surrounding area uh, aren't just random locations in the United States, that there's some sort of secret military programs going on there. When I, when I was uh, looking into this back when it happened, which is just you know, reading around on the Internet and public domain information and so on, uh, one thing I looked at was the list of people who died there. So I went through each person, and I couldn't see anybody who was obviously you know, somehow likely to be a target of the military. But that is one thing I checked. In other words, they would use a mass shooting uh, to cover up uh, an assassination. Yeah, that was one scenario that went through my mind, but I couldn't, just from what's available in the public domain, I couldn't really see anything to back that up. But right. I think an earlier caller, George, alluded to uh, one of the psychiatrists uh, at the school that was Fort killed had, had been at, uh, or was at Fort Hood, had been uh, yeah, involved at, at Guantanamo. Hood. That was the first time I'd heard that. Now, that seems unlikely to be random and coincidental. Uh, what do you what do you make of um, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged mastermind of of, of 9/11? I mean, he has been waterboarded uh, uh, many, many, many times. Um, you know, it's interesting the, the, the photograph uh, when you see uh, when he was apprehended, I believe, in Pakistan, and then you see the photograph of him uh, that was taken in Guantanamo. Guantanamo, quite a transformation. Yeah. I, I hasten to say this, but it, there's a when you look at the photo that came out of Guantanamo. It, it, it doesn't look like the same person, but he, when you look into his eyes, he looks like, I, I hate to say this, but he looks like a gentle soul. Right. What, what do you make of, uh, of um, uh, well, his conf- obviously his confession is suspect. It come, he was tortured, let's face it. But what do you make of uh, uh, Sheikh, uh, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? Do you think it's that he fits the bill as well as a possible Manchurian candidate? I just think that whatever is actually going on in reality with all these things, is likely so convoluted and has so many levels and layers to it. And there's so much disinformation. It's basically impossible to figure out what's going on. And all of these somewhat crazy-sounding, quotes conspiracy theory-type options, I think, are all realistically possible. You're an MD. But what it is that's actually going on, like, I don't pretend to know. You're an MD. Right. Um, the things that you're writing about and talking about, how do they sit with uh, your, your colleagues? Well, uh, basically, if you go into psychiatry and you take childhood abuse and its consequences seriously and you say this is an important thing in the mental health field, right away you're kind of shunned and marginalized. So if you take abuse and neglect seriously, you get kind of abused and neglected by your colleagues. Then if you specialize in dissociative disorders, you get even more shunned and marginalized. And so... You know, I've been used to that going on for many years now. And when I talk about this kind of stuff, basically all I get from psychiatrists, total silence, no reaction whatsoever. Before the book that came out originally was called uh, Bluebird, and then I republished it under a new title, The CIA Doctors, just because I thought nobody would know what the 
title Bluebird meant. Right. Um, and before that book came out, a copy of a proposal that I sent to some editors in New York got leaked to a writer who then leaked it to various other people and so on. And there was a fairly organized campaign to make fun of me as a CIA conspiracy nut that went on for a number of years. And this was in uh, several different magazines, newspapers, and a number of different medical and psychiatric journals. And, you know, I was supposedly saying all kinds of crazy things. But when the book came out, all of that stopped immediately. There was not another word of mockery or derision or discrediting. Because the book's totally based on documents. You can't refute it or make fun of it. It's obviously very well-researched and very real. Are you treating patients that that suspect or you suspect might be mind-control victims? Yep. And that the military mind control book is a case history of such a person that I can't prove actually, in fact, was a mind controlled in operations. But I'd say it's a very compelling story and very realistically possible that she was. I, uh, I've, I've heard this from quite a large number of people. I've uh, interviewed a number of um, uh, mind control victims or people claiming to be mind control victims. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't speak to the veracity of uh, these individuals, but their stories are compelling, and they, I believe they spoke it with great uh, conviction and sincerity. Uh, but what's amazing to me is uh, the, um, these individuals, the, the double lives they, they lead, they might be an unassuming housewife from Arizona uh, by day, and at night uh, they're piloting uh, Black Hawk helicopters, um, are um, expert marksmen, uh, have... Um, incredible skill sets in uh, in areas that they otherwise would have no knowledge of. Uh, right. How how many of these people do you think might be walking around out there? Well, that's a good question to which I don't have a good answer. But if you go to the... Uh, I mean, basically, it's not four or five. You, you couldn't possibly have an organized set of programs running from the Second World War up to the present with the kind of budget and expertise and effort that's involved, and there's only like five or six people. So it's got to be some sort of substantial number of people. Um, If you go to the Senate testimony in the uh, mid-70s, the actual uh, documented facts, and they're documented facts because it's the General Counsel of the U.S. Army providing these facts, Uh, the Army released a list of about 130 different compounds that it had tested in mind control experimentation, including LSD, DZ, whole long list of drugs. And the general counsel said that LSD alone had been tested on the army by the Army on a minimum of 1,500 people. A later estimate from the Army was 4,000 people. But if you figure the Army is only one branch of the military, and then there's the CIA, etc., and there's 130 or so drugs listed, and even if it was 1,500 drugs per, uh, per, people per drug, you're getting up into some very large numbers of people who are involved in some sort of mind control experimentation programming, not necessarily full Manchurian candidate. If the government is pulling people off the street and subjecting them to mass, mass trauma, whether it's physical, sexual abuse, uh, exposing them to uh, mass quantities of hallucinogens, LSD, etc. 
One has to ask, how is that different than what was going on in Nazi Germany? Colin Ross is with the Colin Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma. We're talking Manchurian candidates. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. 416-360-0740, Do you believe the CIA is capable of creating Manchurian candidates or programmed assassins through various mind control techniques? And that is also the poll questions, online poll question, on my website, richardserrett.com. If you go to the homepage and uh, down the left-hand side, you'll see uh, a section called Your Call. That's the poll question. And to date, 78.6% of you say, yes, the CIA is capable of doing this, and they are doing it. And 21.4% say, no, the CIA is not capable of creating Manchurian candidates. Colin A. Ross is with the Colin A. Ross Institute for Psychological Trauma. He's on the line. And uh, we are also joined by Hunter in South Central Ontario. Hunter, go ahead. Hi, uh, I was just wondering, or I wanted to comment on your show. Uh, I, I can't believe that you guys are actually discussing this over the radio, Richard. If I were you, I'd be probably looking for incendiary devices under my vehicle every day when I went out. But anyways, um, I don't understand why you would uh, differentiate what you're talking about from what happened in Nazi Germany when you start uh, delving into uh, the Bilbergs and their goings-on, um, it, it's all interconnected. Um, so why the differentiation? Why the differentiation? Yeah. I'm not sure I follow you. I'm, I'm saying, I'm asking a hypothet- rhetorically, I guess. I think this is what you're referring to, Hunter, when I said, if our governments are targeting us for mind control and subjecting us to psychological torture, a ritualistic uh, abuse, etc. Of course, we're all familiar with that sordid chapter in the uh, the 50s when uh, Dr. Ewan Cameron came up to Allen Memorial Hospital and McGill University and subjected uh, unsuspecting women to uh, massive doses of LSD, uh, erasing their memories. And of course, this is this is not uh, uh, speculation. We know this. This has been uh, uh, there have been court cases about this and money re- uh, awarded to these victims. Uh, how you know we can we can look at what on went what went on in Nazi Germany and say that uh, we're that much different. Is it, I'm, well, I'm guessing that's what you're referring to, Hunter. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you got to look at uh, history. Um that, you know, Nazi, Nazis were driving GMC trucks and Ford trucks, from what I understand. Um, um, my, my mother was um, over there at the time, um, told me that, uh, for, from her knowledge, Winston Churchill was a double agent for the Nazis. And I didn't think a lot of it until I actually saw um, a documentary program on television that showed uh, a, a German air on um, British soil. So um, to, to, to um, mislead the public into thinking that the government is in control of anything uh, in the world, um, 
you you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's uh, whoever controls the world's monetary um, resource is is who's in control. Well, that's right. Roth, Rothschild said, uh, uh, "Give me control of the money, and I care not who makes the laws." So, in other words, Hunter, I just tried to understand your point. You're saying that I was stating the obvious, uh, and uh, I'm I'm known for doing that sometimes. But I thank you for the call, uh, yeah. Colin. Let me ask you about um, uh, Theodore Kaczynski. Uh, Before we get to that, yes. let me throw in a comment on Please. Uh, you and Cameron. He was actually part of a U.S.-based team that went over and interviewed uh, all the defendants in the Nuremberg trials, which included the medical doctors committing all those atrocities and experiments, and included a group of psychiatrists who were doing uh, mescaline and other hallucinogen experiments in the death camps. And then he and others came back to the United States and conducted similar experiments back home. That's an absolute fact. Yes, there were um, uh, a couple of individuals that were charged during the Nuremberg trials, and their defense was, well, uh, we, yes, we were experimenting on, on, uh, on, on people, but uh, we basically were borrowing what the United States was doing. In fact, I, was, I believe it was in the uh, late 30s, early 40s, in a prison in Chicago, uh, they were subjecting uh, inmates to malaria, uh, deliberately exposing them to malaria right. uh, for experiments. And, and that actual uh, project came up during the Nuremberg trials in, in, in defense of some of the Nazis, saying, well, you were doing it, so we thought, well, if you can do it, so can we. Yeah, the Nazi eugenicists got a lot of their theories from American literature. All right, let's talk about uh, Theodore Kaczynski, um, the, the Unabomber. Unabomber. Now, he studied at Harvard, uh, right. and um, I, um, I believe that there was some sort of a, uh, a mind control type program going on over there or behavioral modification program going on there at the time. And, of course, uh, LSD was uh, popularized there um, uh, at about the time that he was attending. Uh, Timothy Leary, of course, was pr- a professor at Harvard. Right. Do you think I McVe- think there's some reasonably. So- I don't know this area real well, but I think there's some reasonably sound documentation that he got LSD in the same time period and in the same circle of people as Timothy Leary. But when you look at his 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 overall uh, you know personality profile, his case, uh, the details that came out, again, would he fit the bill uh, of uh, someone who suffers from dissociative disorder and, and perhaps a mind control? program? Um, I don't know anything in particular about him that would fit the dissociative disorder as such, but every one of these kind of figures, uh, whether we're talking about Sirhan Sirhan or uh, Cho, the Virginia Tech shooter or the Fort Hood shooter, on every single one of these kind of cases, it's a realistic, open question. Is there a mind control component to this? Is the person being handled by anybody? And it's kind of hard for a civilian person to prove one way or the other, but I absolutely, beyond a shadow of doubt, based on documents, would say it's a realistic consideration in every case. Some cases there'll be more evidence, some cases there'll be less. Uh, you mentioned um, Sirhan Sirhan, again, the alleged shooter in the uh, RFK assassin- assassination back in 1968, and uh, he made mention of um, uh, 
the woman in the polka dot dress or eyewitnesses uh, saw a woman in a polka dot dress speaking to uh, Sirhan Sirhan um, before the uh, the shooting at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Right. And um, There's a bunch of circumstantial evidence that he may have been handled or controlled by somebody, but to me the most important facts are, first of all, he has amnesia for the shooting. Um, and there's all those diaries and uh, writings that are in books about him that are either pretty psychotic gibberish or some sort of hypnosis, you know, programming code, trance exercise type material. But by far the most interesting thing in that whole story to me is the physical evidence. And when you look at the, the actual tape of the shooting, you can see very clearly that Sir Hans Sirhan is a number of feet in front of Robert Kennedy. And the official finding from the autopsy is that the fatal shot was a rear-entry shot to the back of his skull behind his ear, fired from several inches away. And in one of the books on the assassination, there's a photograph of the Los Angeles County coroner measuring all the entry holes in the... Uh, he wasn't measuring the body entry holes, but those are obviously measured later. But he was measuring holes in the walls and the door jam. And the official account of this is that the number of bullet entry holes in uh, people and in the surrounding doors and walls is more than the number of chambers in Sirhan's gun. And and this is not a conspiracy theory. This is the official findings. Well, the, yes, the, the L.A. coroner, uh, was it Thomas Noguchi? Right. Uh, uh, was forced to leave office essentially uh, because he would he stood by his his findings. He, then he later returned to Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, nine months after the shooting, LAPD destroyed all the physical evidence in the case. All right. Listen, uh, Colin. Uh, always a um, a fascinating discussion when you're on board, and uh, appreciate you your uh, spending some time with us. Always and, my pleasure. And again, um, we'll direct people to the website www.rossinst, uh, that's R-O-S-S-I-N-S-T, as in institute, rossinst, R-O-S-S-I-N-S-T dot com, and uh, I've linked up to your site on uh, my site, richardserrett.com, and uh, people can uh, go to your bookstore there and uh, purchase your books, and uh, we'll... Uh, no doubt hear more about this Fort Hood shooting, and if there are any updates, we'll, uh, we'll give you a call, Colin. Great. Please do. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Back with uh, a few final words here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Next week on the program, Sunday, 11 p.m. Eastern is when it kicks off. The world's most noted, celebrated, influential UFO disclosure advocate, Stephen Bassett, will be here, fresh off his speaking tour of Europe. And uh, then on the... I'm sorry, next week is the 22nd. Aha, I'm a week ahead of myself. Next week is the 22nd, and we're going to dedicate the full two hours to uh, uh, marking the uh, anniversary of the JFK assassination. It just happens to fall on my watch. Sunday, November the 22nd, and uh, in studio, JFK pioneer, um, JFK assassination pioneer researcher uh, Nelson Fall. He, of course, smuggled the Zapruder film into Canada. He'll be live in studio. 
Uh, but we'll also be joined by Pamela Ray. Pamela Ray is the wife of a gentleman who is in Joliet State Prison in Illinois. His name is James Files, and he has confessed to being the grassy Noel gunman. He is has confessed in uh, at least one documentary and several interviews to firing the fatal headshot from the grassy knoll that felled uh, President John F. Kennedy back in 1963. So uh, she'll be aboard, Nelson Thal, and uh, perhaps one or two other uh, JFK assassination researchers. That's next week, the 22nd. Uh, Then on the 29th, as I just mentioned, Stephen Bassett will be here, um, UFO disclosure advocate. Uh, December the 6th, two days before the anniversary of John Lennon's death, I'll be speaking with the author of a new book called The Lennon Prophecy, who uh, believes Lennon sold his soul to the devil. And, uh, of course, the uh, the bill came due on uh, December the 8th. And uh, rock and roll investigator, the Fox, Fox Mulder of uh, rock and roll, our Gary Roberts will be uh, with us as well on that date, December the 6th, to talk about uh, the very strange life and death of uh, my favorite Beatle, John Lennon. I also want to remind you, again, keep visiting the website, richardserrett.com. Details coming very shortly on uh, a, uh, a course I will be offering, a 39-hour uh, course on writing, producing, and hosting for talk radio and talk television. It will be offered at the Toronto Film and Media College here in Toronto, which is at 1 Eglinton Avenue East, right at Young Street. Uh, But I will have details on my website where uh, you can uh, email me for more details if you're interested in uh, partaking. And one final note, of course, uh, the... uh, the screening of I Know What I Saw coming up November the 22nd, Sunday, November 22nd. I'll be there at the De La Salle Oakland's Auditorium, Farnham Avenue in Toronto, 12.30 p.m. The door is open, $5 at the door for this shocking, controversial, important UFO documentary. And uh, again, we'll see you uh, next Sunday here on the radio. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Happy birthday to you. Hey, Bye. where's Mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means... There's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.